0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Today's episode involves sexual assault, so I'd like to emphasize listener discretion. At 4.08 a.m., a fire alarm went off at Poland Hall Dormitory on the Western Kentucky University campus. Students in all states of undress, most grumpy and hungover, glumly gathered outside and waited to be told it was a false alarm so they could go back to bed. Some had only been asleep for a couple of hours. There had been a big frat party over at the Pike House the night before. But the grumbling turned to gasping as two firemen brought out a small young woman, naked except for the sheet she was carried in and the t-shirt tied around her neck. She had burns from her neck to her thighs. She would be taken by helicopter to the burn unit at Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, where she would die three days later from third-degree burns. Katie Autry had come to Western Kentucky University beating all odds, She had been bounced between her mentally ill mother and relatives until she was placed in foster care at the age of 10. Despite her hard scrabble upbringing, she worked hard in high school. She was a straight-A cheerleader, an overachiever, a bubbly, always-smiling, petite, and pretty girl. At Western, she did change a bit. It was her freshman year, and like a lot of new college students, she was drinking and partying too much, and she was also working out some of her demons. But she was finding her footing and her independence. She had a bright future ahead of her. Until it was stolen from her in the early morning hours that May 4th, 2003, when she was raped and then set on fire in her dorm room. Two suspects would emerge. One from a wealthy family with the resources for a first-rate defense. The other was poor, mixed race, and was assigned a public defender. Even 16 years later... A lot of locals aren't happy with the investigation, the trial, or the outcome. Many still believe that one of those boys got away with murder. Welcome to Episode 62, The Rape and Murder of Katie Autry. Bowling Green is a mid-sized city nestled in southern Kentucky, among the hills, caves, beautiful foliage, and humidity that dominates much of the South. It's probably most famous as the city that manufactures Corvettes. At the General Motors Corvette assembly plant, visitors can watch the step-by-step production of one of America's favorite sports cars. The Corvette Museum includes one-of-a-kind prototypes that were designed but never manufactured, along with other Corvette memorabilia. In 2014, a huge sinkhole opened up beneath the Sky Dome of the museum, swallowing eight custom Corvettes. The sinkhole was 40 feet wide and about 30 feet deep. It made international news, but thankfully, the structure of the building was not damaged, and the museum sits at the same site today. The sinkhole has been credited with helping tourism in the area, and the anniversary is celebrated every year. Last year, one of the sinkhole corvettes that had been restored was put on display. Bowling Green is about sixty miles northeast of Nashville and a hundred miles southwest of Louisville, and it sits at the edge of a karst region where caves, springs, and sinkholes are common. Karst is landscape underlain by limestone, which has eroded over the centuries. The main entrance to Mammoth Cave National Park is about thirty miles northeast of the city. It's a cave system spanning more than 400 miles. Bowling Green has its own large ancient cavern that sits in the middle of the city. The Lost River Cave is actually a seven-mile cave system that originates outside the cave and flows into it. There is an underground boat tour on the shortest, deepest river in the world, where you can see land formation more than 10,000 years old. The cave was used for shelter by Native Americans and Civil War soldiers. The Louisville and Nashville Railroad known as CSX Transportation today, came through Bowling Green in 1859, connecting the city with northern and southern markets. Though Kentucky never left the Union during the Civil War, Bowling Green declared itself neutral, hoping to escape the war. But because of its prime location and resources, both Union and Confederate armies sought control of the city. Today, the city of almost 70,000 is more diverse, though still predominantly white. The 1990s brought a boom in immigration, and along with the different cultures came more restaurants and retail centers, and a shift in demographics, meaning xenophobia joined the racism common to many small towns. There were already black neighborhoods, and now they had Little Mexico. As with any city, that caused more racial tensions. But ultimately, the immigration boom also brought new businesses and breathed new life into the small city but the relatively small southern town was already a bit of a melting pot due to Western Kentucky University being located there. The students and younger generations had a more cosmopolitan attitude than the older residents. WKU is a public university founded by the Commonwealth of Kentucky in 1906. With over 20,000 students, degrees range from liberal arts, nursing, and engineering. WKU offers 12 graduate school programs as well and has been repeatedly named as one of the top producers of Fulbright Scholars in the United States. WKU is more commonly known as Western, so that is how I will be referring to it. It was in this diverse, liberal, and yet still judgmental world that Katie Autry entered when she enrolled at Western in 2002. I'm going to pause now for a quick commercial break.
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DW Void we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? <sighs> Ooh,
1: a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
0: Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba, ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. prohibited by law. 18 plus, and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: When 18-year-old Katie Autry came to Western in the fall of 2002, she was studying to become a dental hygienist. Katie's real name was Melissa K. Autry, but her family had always called her Katie. She was born June tenth, nineteen 1984, to her mother, Donnie Mae Autry, in Rasine, Kentucky. She had a younger half-sister named Lisa. Lisa explained to author William Van Meter that they didn't know who Katie's father was, and Lisa's father was in prison. The sisters were just two years apart in age and extremely close. They really needed each other, and Lisa considered Katie a mother figure. She also affectionately called her big sister Sissy. Their mother, Donnie, suffered from schizophrenia, and the sisters bounced between relatives until Katie was 10 years old. They had been living with her aunt, but her husband went to social services and signed the girls up for foster care. They went to live with an older couple named Jim and Shirley Inman in Pellville, Kentucky. Jim was ex-military, and he and Shirley were in their 60s. They had stringent notions of how young girls should be raised. They were strict, but they did care for the girls. Katie and Lisa lived in a nice two-story house, and for the first time in their lives, they got to travel a bit. When Katie entered Hancock High School, the teenage tension did begin. It's not unusual in any family, but particularly hard in a foster family. Katie and Lisa both felt different. They felt like the foster kids they were. Katie worked hard to overcome the stigma. She was an excellent student, an overachiever, and a joiner. She was in numerous academic clubs, and she was a cheerleader. As a short, tiny girl, she was a flyer, what cheerleaders call the girl at the top of the pyramid. But despite all of this, Katie at heart was still lonely. She had one close friend in high school, but the girl moved away before their senior year. After that, Katie got a job at Wendy's after school to start saving money for college. Her first semester at Western was a bit rocky. Katie and her first roommate didn't get along. The roommate criticized her for sleeping around, especially with black guys. Perhaps because she had been through the foster care system, Katie didn't have the same prejudice about interracial dating. In fact, she preferred to date African-American boys. But her roommate wasn't wrong about her reputation. Katie was nicknamed the Ho of the Second floor. Her room was on the second floor of the Poland Hall dormitory on campus. Unfortunately, sexual promiscuity isn't unusual for someone who had been through as much as Katie had. She was volleyed between family members at a young age, landing with an older foster family. She never knew her father. But she did finally find a friend and ally, as well as a new roommate, named Danica Jackson. Danica and Katie were instant best friends right from the start. Danica loved Katie and felt very protective of her. She looked out for her, and as Katie didn't own a car, she gave her rides everywhere. So during that first year, Katie did become more independent. She actually went to social services and had herself rescinded from foster care. You can stay in foster care until you're 21 and still receive benefits, and the state paid her tuition, but it was important to Katie to stand on her own feet, so she dropped down to part-time in her classes and got a job at a smoothie shop. Also, to the shock of many, Katie started working as a stripper at a club called Tattletales on the edge of town in April of 2003. Danica did too, but only lasted for two shifts. It wasn't for her, but Katie really liked it. She was good at it, and she made a few hundred dollars a night. Her boss would later say that clients loved her. It wasn't just her blonde, all-American good looks. Some guys really just wanted to talk to Katie. And Katie didn't just like the work. She was saving up to buy her own car, and she and Danica also wanted to rent an apartment off campus. Katie was determined to be more independent, and she wasn't ashamed of the work. She called her birth mom and aunt and told both of them. They were more concerned with her walking alone in a dark parking lot after work, but it was her body as far as they were concerned about her new job. Possibly one issue in Katie and Danica's friendship at the time of Katie's death was her dating a young African-American football player named Maurice. Danica didn't approve of Maurice because he had a girlfriend who lived out of town, and she thought he was using Katie. Danica was mixed race herself, so she didn't object to his race, but rather how he treated Katie. And while Maurice was seeing two girls, he told author William Van Meter that he really liked Katie. He thought she had a delightful laugh because, quote, it was just so country. He said he was attracted to her because she laughed all the time. And he did give her rides and cared for her in his own way. And to be fair to Maurice, the dislike with Danica was mutual. He thought Danica partied too much and was a bad influence on Katie. But he was still unwilling to be exclusive with Katie. She begged him for a t-shirt of his to sleep in and he finally gave in and gave her an old soft turquoise colored shirt. She loved it and slept in it every night. She was wearing it when she was attacked in her dorm room in the early hours of May 4th, 2003. I'm going to pause now for a word from one of our sponsors. Are you happy with how much money you make at your current job? How does $40,000 a year sound? And even better, what if I told you that you could double that amount in just a few years? If that got your attention, maybe you should check out truck driving jobs. Are you tired of working retail or the drudgery of office work? Maybe you feel stuck in a dead-end job and are looking for a change. With the improved economy and flourishing commercial trucking industry, the demand for drivers is really high. CDL.com makes it easy to get a commercial driving license and find the right job for you and your needs. With CDL, you can find opportunities in your own town or down the road a bit. At CDL.com, you'll have access to long-term and short-term truck driving jobs. All you do is create a driver profile and apply to jobs within minutes. And CDL.com isn't just for those wanting to become truckers. It's also for experienced drivers looking for a new job. It's a site for anyone looking to start or expand their trucking career. With plenty of new jobs and schools around the country, get your trucking career started at at cdl.com. Explore a truckload of jobs for the trucker in you. On the afternoon of May 3rd, Katie and Danica went shopping and then napped. Katie took Danica's car to Arby's to get dinner. She called Maurice when she left the dorm out of Danica's hearing to offer him some food. He accepted, and she took him his bag first before returning to the dorm room. That night, the girls planned to attend a frat party at the Pike House, and they were pre-gaming in a friend's room down the hall, drinking what they called golden grain, which was pure grain alcohol mixed with Sprite. By the time they arrived at the party, Katie was already very intoxicated. This was another problem. She wasn't a happy drunk. In fact, her normal cheerfulness would give way to tears and anger. It's because alcohol removes your filter. Katie still had a lot of pent-up feelings, despite trying her best to work them out. But Danica was annoyed. She did babysit Katie all the time when she was drunk, and Katie was particularly belligerent this night. She was all over the place at the party, teetering on her high heels, dancing with many different guys. And during this, she was calling Maurice's cell phone repeatedly, begging him to come to the party. He finally did, but he told her he wasn't staying long and refused to dance with her. As she became argumentative, he said he was taking a walk. At this, Katie screamed, Forget it! I hate you! And slapped him and then Maurice was done and left the party. A security guard now noticed Katie. She was dancing aggressively with several young black men, and it was causing issues with the other girls at the party. She was getting into arguments and just becoming a nuisance. She was upset about Maurice and probably trying to make him jealous, or she needed to feel wanted after his rejection. It doesn't matter. She was very drunk, and we all make poor decisions in that state. Finally, the fraternity brothers asked the security guard to escort Katie out of the party. Katie ran to Danica crying, and Danica tried to take up for her friend, shouting, She just broke up with her boyfriend. Give her a minute. Danica told the guard she would take care of her friend, but right then, a pledge named Ryan Payne walked up and offered to give Katie a ride home. The new pipe pledges were all acting as designated drivers that evening. Normally, Danica wouldn't have let Katie go with a guy in that condition. But Ryan was completely sober, and it was his assigned job. And Danica had met a boy she liked. He had invited her to his room, and she wanted to go. Exasperated, she let her friend go with Ryan Payne. She would later feel guilt-ridden about this decision. But she knew Ryan, and was tired of babysitting Katie. And it's not her fault what happened next. Ryan didn't have his own car, so he borrowed a truck from a guy named Brian Moon. Already in the truck, passed out, was Stephen Soles. He scooted over to let Katie in the truck, and they drove to Poland Hall. Ryan later said he watched Katie drunkenly stumble up the concrete path and go inside. And then Ryan reported that Stephen Souls said, quote, I'm going to go holler at her. Stephen Lee Souls was part of what was called the Scottsdale Crew, a group of guys from Scottsdale, Kentucky, who didn't attend Western, but hung out with some of the students. He was 19 and a light-skinned, mixed-race young man. His father Danny was black, and his mother Jean was white. He had an older brother named Daniel, and when his parents divorced young, his father raised the boys. Stephen was especially close to his grandmother, Evangeline, and stayed at her tiny cottage more than he did at home. Because he was so light-skinned, his friends nicknamed him Guido because they said he looked Mexican. Stephen took it in stride. He has been characterized as both a sweet, polite boy and as a liar and a thief. I think it's possible both were true. He mooched off of friends because he didn't have his own car or cell phone, and he was banned from the homes of several friends because when he would leave, things would turn up missing. But he was also known to dote on his grandmother, and he had many friends. On May 3rd, his friend Wesley picked him up with another guy named Chris, already in the back seat. They all planned to get drunk and go to that frat party at the Pike House that they had heard about. They bought two 18-packs of Coors Light and rode around drinking for several hours before going to the apartment of a girl named Sarah. There, Stephen used Wesley's phone to call a guy he knew named Luke Goodrum. He had known him from high school, but he bought weed from him now. But Luke's roommate answered the phone because Luke wasn't at home. Lucas Brian Goodrum was 21 years old, 6 foot 2 inches tall, with dark blonde hair and dark eyes. He was considered a fairly good-looking guy. He lived in Scottsdale with his dad, Mike, and stepmother, Judy. His mother, Donna, was married to a man named Bruce Degas. He was the grandson of Cal Turner founder of the Dollar General store chain. Luke's mom and stepdad lived on a horse ranch outside of Dallas, Texas. Luke spent most of his first years with his mother, but Donna and Bruce had many marital issues, and Bruce was abusive to her. She took out many domestic violence petitions on her husband, and had in fact filed for divorce. But they soon reunited, and right after they got back together in December of 1993, when Luke would have been 12, Bruce was imprisoned for vehicular homicide. He had caused a wreck that killed another man and tested positive for cocaine. Despite their problems, Donna stood by her husband while he was in prison, even writing the parole board explaining that she needed him at home. She had a young son who she was having trouble raising without Bruce. But when Bruce got out, he clashed with his stepson. Luke was told he could go to military school or move back in with his real father in Kentucky. He chose to live with his dad. In Scottsville, Luke drifted aimlessly. He got his girlfriend pregnant when they were still teenagers, but they married anyway. He and LaDonna Petrick were already divorced, and their son was two years old in 2003. As patterns will go, Luke had been abusive to LaDonna and had many domestic violence arrests on his record. Luke was a self-proclaimed loser. He rarely worked, preferring to drink, smoke weed, and play video games. He also sold marijuana and sometimes cocaine for income. On May 3rd, he and his 17-year-old girlfriend Brittany had been hanging out. They went to the liquor store, and when they got back, one of Brittany's ex-boyfriends called her cell phone. Luke picked it up, answered, and was furious. Brittany denied talking to her ex, saying she didn't know why he had called. But Luke threw the phone at her and slapped her in the face. Brittany fought back, but she later told police that Luke pinned her down on the bed and slapped her twice more. Luke's roommate, Matt, and his girlfriend witnessed all of this. When Luke tried to stop Brittany from leaving by sitting on her when she got into her car, Matt's girlfriend called the police. Luke took off when he heard the sirens. Brittany would later say he was choking her as he sat on her. When Luke returned several hours later, Matt told him about Stephen's call. Stephen was not welcome in their apartment because, as I mentioned earlier, his habit of petty theft got him banned from many places. So Luke told Stephen to meet him at the bowling alley. Sarah drove Stephen over to meet Luke. He got in the car with them and went back to Sarah's apartment where the small group drank and smoked blunts and hung out waiting for the Pike party. Friends from Western, Damien Seacrest and Brian Moon, came to pick up the Scottsville crew and take them to the party. On the way to the Pike house frat party, Stephen threw up in Damien's car. He had been drinking heavily and smoking weed on an empty stomach. Stephen stayed in the car, passed out, while the rest of the guys went into the party. At 12.58 a.m., he called a friend named Brian Ritchie and asked him to come and get him. Brian told him no. He didn't like Stephen's mooching either and told him he had to be up early at 7 a.m. The original plan that night for the guys was for Brian Moon, Damien, and Luke to walk to Bemis Lawrence dorm, where Damien lived on campus. As Stephen was still passed out in the truck, Ryan Payne was supposed to drop him off at the dorm after he dropped off Katie and then wait to take Luke back to his car at the bowling alley. So Stephen should have been at the dorm when they arrived at 2.15 a.m. They asked the residential advisor on duty if she had seen Stephen, and she said no. She remembered and recognized Luke Goodrum later. She said he was quiet and just sat down on the lounge couch. At 2.18 a.m., Damien called Ryan to remind him to pick up Luke. Ryan showed up about 20 minutes later and took Luke to his car. Luke later said he was home at his father's house around 3 a.m., After Danica left the pipe party, she got worried that she hadn't heard from Katie. She called her cell and the dorm room. Katie finally answered at 2.26 a.m. Danica said it sounded like she was face down on her pillow. Danica asked if she had made it home okay, and Katie said yeah, and then Danica heard her door shut in the background. Katie said, I'm scared. Someone just came into the room. Danica asked, well, who is it? Katie said, I don't know. I don't know. Her voice sounded muffled. Danica told her to hand the phone to whoever it was. A male voice came on the line and when Danica asked him who he was, he said, quote, I'm the boy who brought her home. She got sick in the truck, so I just wanted to make sure she was okay. Danica instructed him to turn Katie on her side so she wouldn't choke if she vomited again. Then she thought she heard another male voice in the background and then she heard the door close. Katie took the phone back and said, I just want to go to sleep. I just want to go to sleep. And at 2.28 a.m. the call ended. Danica called their friend Amy down the hall to check on her, but the call went to voicemail. I would like to point out here that Luke was seen and identified by the RA at the Bemis Storm at 2.15 and wasn't picked up for at least 20 more minutes. Then Ryan said he took him to his car at the bowling alley. At 4.08 a.m., the fire alarm went off at Poland Hall. A Western Campus police officer was dispatched to investigate. He saw water seeping out from under the door to room 214. He used the master key to open it and then slammed it shut when the smoke hit him in the face. He ran and got a wet paper towel to use as a face mask to go back in as his shift commander radioed, telling him to get out of the building and wait for the Bowling Green Fire Department. Fire alarm calls aren't unusual in dorms. Hot plates, cigarettes, and pranksters are usually the culprit without major damage or injury. Captain Bob Sanborn explained that 95% of these calls were already put out by sprinklers when they arrived. He and another firefighter put on their masks before entering the stairwell to the hallway. When Sanborn opened the door, he saw what they call cold smoke. Black clouds of smoke from a fire already extinguished. Water was spewing from the overhead sprinkler, but it had also been draped with a blanket. Even though the room was almost completely black, he spotted something glistening on one of the beds. It was Katie's arm, with the skin burnt off. It was the exposed flesh that he had seen. The bed was covered in blankets and clothes that were still smoldering. He brushed all of that off, and then he saw Katie. Her face was wrapped tight with some kind of sheer cloth, giving it the grotesque look of a Halloween mask. A white t-shirt was knotted around her neck, and the remains of a turquoise t-shirt still stuck to her shoulders. It was the t-shirt Maurice had given her. Sanborn was shocked to see her chest rise and fall. He radioed immediately that he had a victim and needed help. He picked Katie up in her scorched sheet and he said she was very slippery and couldn't weigh more than a hundred and ten pounds. When he got her out into the hallway where he could see better, he was horrified. Just as he got out the door, two other firemen came in to evaluate her. All they could do was hold up the corners of the sheet, praying they were not further injuring the poor girl. None of the men could scarcely believe it was a real person. They could hold their corner of the sheet with one hand. Katie Autry was a really tiny girl. As soon as they got outside, they ripped off their helmets and screamed for a medic. Sanborn instructed them to give her air from their mask. He rightly believed that Katie Hatton died from smoke inhalation because of the cloth tied around her face acting as a filter. When the ambulance got there, the men were helping Katie breathe, and she was fighting the mask, knocking it off with her hand. In her pitiful, confused mind, there's no telling what she was thinking. They got her in the ambulance and tried to insert an IV into her burnt arm but couldn't. Katie kept mumbling weakly, just take me home. Katie was wheeled into the emergency room of the Bowling Green Medical Center. She was covered in third-degree burns so thick her skin was hardened and her body was still smoking. One of the attending technicians told author William Van Meter, quote, With the extent of her burns, if you can call it a blessing, there was probably very little pain involved at that point. The burns would have killed away most of the nerves so there wouldn't be much pain, but she had many other minor burns that could cause a great deal of pain. She also had two puncture wounds in her neck. The technicians immediately noticed the t-shirt around her neck, and her face also had extensive bruising. One tech said it was so bad it was almost an indention to the left side of her face. She had a black eye that was swollen shut, and the burn pattern was strange. She had no burns to her back or legs. It was all on the front, from the top of her breast down to her mid-thighs, in the groin area. This was unusual. People who fall asleep with a cigarette or some other way of setting a bed on fire always have burns to the back. She should have had burns that went all the way around her extremities. The text said she did not. Team leader Dr. Lee Carter screamed, Get the police here. This was not an accident. The text bagged her hands trying to preserve evidence and all the clothing, or what was left of it, for the police. Katie had a belly button ring that was melted into her flesh. A breathing tube was inserted into her throat, and the staff did what they could to make her comfortable with sterile, cool water and towels, also trying to prevent infection. And then they tried to insert a catheter. Normally, there is a specific place to insert the catheter called the urinary meatus, which is the opening where your urine comes out. Katie's had been completely burned off. There was no distinguishable opening so they just had to guess and hope they were inserting it correctly. Though the ER team had immediately called the police, the helicopter to take Katie to Vanderbilt's burn unit was already there. They knew this would wind up being a homicide investigation, and they tried the city police, the WKU campus police, even the state police, begging for someone to come photograph Katie before she was moved. Finally, a state trooper showed up and snapped a few pictures, but they could not hold the helicopter any longer. The entire ER team was in shock and upset, but one of the techs noted that Dr. Carter, who was known to be a calm, stoic professional, picked up a chair and threw it across the room. They had done everything they could for Katie Autry, and they knew she was going to die. Though Katie's birth mother heard of a disturbance at Katie's dorm over a police scanner, it was her foster parents who got the call from campus police. Even though she was emancipated, the Inmans would have been her emergency contact when she enrolled at Western. Shirley Inman called Katie's Aunt Virginia and told them she was being taken to Vanderbilt. So ten minutes later, Virginia, her husband, and Barbie were flying down the highway to Bowling Green, as Virginia called everyone she knew, asking them to pray. They met the Inmans there, and the families drove together to Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville. That would be the last of the civility between the two families. Danica and Katie's friend Amy, the one Danica called but got voicemail to check on her friend, now called Danica to tell her about the fire. At first, Danica's thought was, great, drunk Katie burned down our dorm room. But then Amy told her that Katie had been pulled from the building and was taken by ambulance. Danica raced back to the dorm and was met by police who told her that she was probably okay, just had smoke inhalation, but they kept asking her strange questions. Were the scissors out? Do you keep knives in the room? They finally explained that Katie had puncture wounds. They kept asking if Katie was suicidal. Slowly, they explained the gravity of Katie's third-degree burns. At Vanderbilt, Katie was sedated and put on a ventilator. She had to undergo additional resuscitation due to low blood pressure. Her life was hanging by a thread. She had to undergo a procedure where they cut long slits into her skin so that her chest could rise and fall because her skin was too toughened to allow it. They excised the burned skin and used skin grafts from a cadaver. At 10 a.m., she was listed as extremely critical. That was upgraded an hour later to severely critical. Virginia and her family were made to sit in the waiting room as the Inmans were allowed to go in and see Katie. Virginia was angry. The Inmans were not Katie's parents as she saw it. I understand her loyalty to her sister, but the Inmans did raise Katie. They were not perfect but they did love their foster daughter and raised her as best as they knew how. I think this was all just so much raw emotion. People get angry, intense, or upsetting situations and want somebody to direct it at. Katie's biological family lashed out at her foster parents. When Virginia finally did get to see her niece, despite warnings from the nurses, she went into hysterics. Meanwhile, Danica and her mother Donna Jackson were racing to Vanderbilt as well. Donna thought that if anyone could get Katie to wake up, it would be Danica. When they got to the hospital, neither the Autrys nor the Inmonds would let them see Katie. It was as if they blamed poor Danica. Lisa Autry spent every minute she could in her sister's room, cuddling her as best she could around the machines. Lisa, her Aunt Virginia, and cousin Barbie sang the song My Girl to Katie. But nothing would wake Katie ever again. At 7.10 p.m. on May 7th, Katie Autry died. Her cause of death was complications of thermal burns. She had third-degree burns over 40% of her body with extensive injury to her genitals. The contributory cause listed was blunt and sharp force injury to her head and neck. The manner of death was homicide. Antibacterial hand lotion had been put inside her vagina and squirted into her purse and also smeared on the doorknob of the dorm room. A can of hairspray was found that was used as an accelerant. She had been sprayed, specifically on her breasts and genitals, and then set on fire. Students at Western were in the middle of a candlelight vigil for Katie when they received word of her death. The vigil was now a memorial. At 7 a.m. on May 4th, Brian Ritchie woke up and found Stephen Soles on his couch. This was the friend who had refused to give him a ride the night before. He asked Stephen how he got there, and Stephen said he walked from the university to his house. Brian thought this was bullshit, because Stephen was too lazy. This time, he gave Stephen a ride to Sarah's just to get rid of him. There was a child's purple bicycle lying in his front yard. At Sarah's, Stephen found that Wesley was still there, and Wesley drove him to his grandmother's house in Scottsville. His grandmother was awake, so he went to her bedroom instead of the couch. He took off his clothes, and there was a feces stain on his shirt. He folded the clothes and hid them under a baby bed Evangeline kept for visiting grandchildren. Then he took a shower and went to bed. He woke up later that afternoon and walked next door to a lot with a foundation but no house and dropped a handful of jewelry into some cinder blocks. He was on the phone with a friend when a special agent from the ATF called his grandmother's phone and asked for him. He lied and said he was his cousin and that Stephen was in Louisville. On the evening of May 4th, Luke was at home watching basketball when someone knocked on his door. It was Brittany's father, and he said, stay away from my daughter before he punched Luke in the face. Naturally, Gentleman Luke called Brittany the next day and told her if she dropped the charges against him, he wouldn't press charges against her father. Then not long after that, Luke and Brittany got back together. I'm going to pause now to hear a final word from our sponsors. Whatever scent you're wearing is your favorite. You have good taste, and you know what you like. And while we all love having a signature scent, it's really nice to mix it up from time to time. Scentbird is a subscription service for luxury perfumes and colognes. It's a way to discover new scents without buying the whole bottle. There are more than 450 designer brands to choose from. You just pick the perfume or cologne you want to try, and Scentbird sends you a 30-day supply. I've liked every new perfume I've tried with Scentbird, and it's because their website makes it so easy to narrow down choices for my taste. Do you like floral or spicy fragrances? Do you prefer a clean scent or something more sexy? Scentbird has whatever you're looking for. If you're not sure what you're looking for, you can sort your Scentbird search by brand, style, occasion, season, and even types, or you can take Scentbird's True Scent Quiz for personalized recommendations. I have an exclusive offer for Southern Fried listeners. You can get 50% off your first month today. That's only $7.50 to try your first fragrance. Go to scentbird.com southernfried and use my code southernfried to get 50% off your first month. Again, that's scentbird.com slash southernfried to try your first perfume or cologne for $7.50. Sign up today and take an adventure with your fragrance. Getting in shape isn't just about losing weight. It's about learning healthier habits, feeling better about yourself, and finding ways to achieve your personal goals. What if you could use just one program for all your health and weight loss needs? Let me tell you about Noom. Noom is not a diet. It's a habit-changing solution that helps you develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. I tried Noom not just for dieting but to help me learn better habits to control my blood pressure issues. With guidance from Noom, I can go out to dinner with friends without worry because I now have the tools to make better choices. With the Noom app on your phone, you've got support in the palm of your hand whenever you need it. Noom has one of the largest and most accurate food databases available so you can track your meal habits, visualize portion sizes, and Check calories at a glance. And you're human. If you go off track, there's no shaming, just helpful tips to get you back on track tomorrow. Small steps make big progress. So sign up for your trial today at slash Noom, southern fried. What are you waiting for? Visit slash southern fried to start your trial today. Again, that's slash southern fried. It's the last weight loss program you'll need. Katie's murder could have fallen under Kentucky State Police jurisdiction, or the city of Bowling Green, both of which offered assistance. Other agencies that helped were the ATF, the Bowling Green Fire Department, and the FBI. WKU Police Chief Robert Dean was a retired Detroit police officer who worked homicide, but not since 1989. He put Western Police Detective Mike Dowell in charge of the case. Dowell had a degree in general studies and had once worked as a dispatcher for the Kentucky State Police before he became a patrolman at Western. In 1996, he was made an investigator. The other detective assigned was Jerry Phelps, who had never investigated a murder, rape, or arson. Dowell had only investigated rapes, but none that had gone to trial. The only violent crime he ever investigated was a student punching a taxi driver. In William Van Meter's book, Bluegrass, A True Story of Murder in Kentucky, the author said this was a highly unusual precedent. I'm sure it has happened before, but I couldn't find another example in my research. But I did find that in state-owned schools, campus police have the same authority and jurisdiction afforded to state police. In Kentucky, the campus police are granted the same authority and power as a county sheriff, including power of arrest, authority to carry firearms on and off duty on property owned by the campus or surrounding streets. In certain situations, Kentucky campus police can assert jurisdiction, but it is usually in conjunction and agreement with another agency, whether it is the state, police, city, or county. Kentucky campus police are required to be trained and certified as peace officers through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet Law Enforcement Training Center, unless they have previous training recognized by the state. I am still baffled after this explanation. It seems incredible to me that the state police didn't enforce jurisdiction, or Bowling Green, or Warren County Sheriff's Department, or the FBI. Any one of these agencies could have forced jurisdiction over the campus. I don't believe that these institutions did not care about the Katie Autry case. In fact, they did assist the WKU police. So I just don't get it. And the campus police investigation would be heavily criticized. Not that a normal police investigation wouldn't have been criticized in some way, but still. Letting the campus police department handle the crime scene and investigation was a big mistake as far as optics were concerned. As they processed the crime scene, they found the bottle of hairspray that had washed out into the hallway with the water. The smoke alarm was ripped from the ceiling, and Katie's Afghan blanket was tied around the sprinkler. The door to her room had been locked from the outside with her own key. When Danica was allowed back in the room, she told them that Katie's jewelry was missing. The RA on duty at Poland Hall that night told police that Katie came in around 1.30 or 2 a.m. and took the elevator. She said she was alone. The Western Campus Police and other agencies had already gotten wind of the Scottsville crew being at the same party as Katie. They already had the names of Stephen Souls and Luke Goodrum, among others. But the RA on duty that night would insist she didn't see Stephen or Luke come in. As they questioned the fraternity brothers about the party, they learned of Ryan Payne, the designated driver. They learned from the security guard that evening that Payne had given Katie Autry a ride home after she was asked to leave the party. Police picked up Ryan Payne and questioned him. He truthfully told about taking Luke to the Bemis dorm, but his story about giving Katie a ride was shaky. In his first story, he said he asked her if she would be okay and then watched her go into the dorm. He didn't mention Stephen Souls until he was directly confronted, and then he admitted that, yes, he was in the car with him. Payne agreed to go to the hospital for sexual perpetrator testing, but he wouldn't talk to the police again without an attorney. I don't get this kid. Why would he protect Stephen? They weren't friends. Maybe he was afraid of being implicated. Maybe he felt guilty that he allowed Stephen to follow the drunken Katie up to her room. He later met Brian Moon for dinner, and they commiserated at having to take the hospital perp tests, and they talked about Stephen Souls. Ryan told Brian about Stephen going back into Poland Hall after Katie, and Brian said that he hadn't seen him all night after he passed out in the truck. On Wednesday, May 7th, a Bowling Green Fire Department sergeant and the ATF agent showed up at Stephen's grandmother's house to question him. He claimed he had never been to Poland Hall and didn't remember any girl getting into the truck. Stephen claimed Brian Ritchie picked him up from Bema Storm. Ritchie originally backed him up, but then called the police and arranged a meeting with a detective and an ATF agent. This time, he told the truth about Stephen's late night call to him and then finding him on his couch at 7 a.m. the next morning. He explained that out of loyalty, he covered for Stephen, but then went and questioned him himself and that Stephen kept changing his story. I'm his own friend, and his story kept on changing and changing to me. Stephen kept ducking authorities, but now his family knew something was up. His father Danny kept in touch with the police, assuring them that Stephen would come in for questioning. His father finally called a detective and told him Stephen had admitted to having sex with Katie Autry and that his son was scared. Stephen had agreed to talk to the police if they would let him get some rest. The detective in question agreed and showed up at Danny's house at 7 a.m. the next morning. Why? They knew where he was. Why would they let him sleep? He admitted to having sex with Katie. That should have been enough for an arrest warrant. And yet they waited. When Stephen Souls was finally picked up for questioning, he was taken to a state police outpost in Bowling Green. He told them about his ride with Katie and Ryan Payne, and that Katie had jokingly called him sick boy. He and Payne dropped her off, and he had gone up to make sure she got inside all right. He claimed that she invited him into her room, and then she took the elevator, but he took the stairs because he was afraid of elevators. This would explain why the RA didn't see him that night. The stairs were not in the direct line of sight the way the elevator was. Stephen said they had sex, and then she got sick again around 2.30 or 3 a.m., so he left and was at Brian Ritchie's house by 3.30 a.m. He repeated the same story at least three times, and even admitted to speaking to Danica on the phone. Finally, the police started grilling him and showed him the hairspray can with his fingerprints on it. Stephen claimed he didn't know, but maybe he picked it up when he was looking around her room. He admitted he often took things from friends' apartments. The detectives fired away at him. Quote, Somebody hurt that girl. How did things go bad? Are you covering for someone else, Stephen? At this, Stephen said, I didn't hurt that girl. Somebody kept calling her phone, and I don't know who it was, but it could have been her boyfriend. When I was leaving, there was some dude standing in the hallway. I don't know if he went in and done it, but I didn't hurt that girl. Stephen claimed he didn't know the guy, that he hadn't seen him before, and didn't know that many people on campus. They asked him if something went wrong during the rape, and Stephen insisted it was consensual, that he wasn't that type of person. The cops kept asking leading questions. Was it a buddy of his that had come by and hurt Katie? Were you scared, Stephen? I bet you didn't know what to do. You were scared to death, right? At this, Stephen started nodding and staring at the floor. He mumbled, scared to death. Now, to be clear, they are allowed to ask leading questions. But in this case, they planted the idea in Stephen's mind to try and pin it on another assailant, an additional man in the room that night. And if that was true, why was it not in Stephen's original story? Stephen then said, quote, We was in there messing around or whatever. You know, we was having sex. A buddy of mine comes in there, Luke. I guess he knew the girl or some shit like that. I guess he talked to her at the party. The police already had Luke Goodrum's name as one of the Scottsville crew guys at the party, but this was the first time he was implicated. Stephen said, quote, He started talking to her and asking if we could run a train on her and shit like that. He told the detectives that Katie had said no, and Luke had become forceful with her. He said he had started hitting her and put a pillow over her face. Then he claimed that he walked out into the hall because he didn't know what to do. When he came back in, he said Luke was raping Katie. Again, the detective leads him. Has Lucas been known to do stuff like that before? Get violent like that? Stephen heartily agreed and said that's why he was in Bowling Green. Quote, him and his girl got in a fight. He hit her and stuff and thought the police were after him. They asked him if Luke made him help. Hold the pillow or anything, and Stephen said no. Were you scared of Lucas, they asked. Well, he's bigger than me, Stephen answered. You know I'm not a fighter or nothing, but I was just shocked. They asked him if he let Luke in, and he said no. He had knocked, and Katie got up and let him in. They asked him if Luke was there when Danica called. Stephen said no. He arrived shortly after. That's an interesting answer, because he couldn't have known that Danica thought she had heard two voices. I bet he would have said Luke was there if he had known. They asked... You sure he was the last one up there? Stephen said yes, because I left as soon as it happened, as soon as he was hitting her. Stephen then insisted he left and didn't see the rest of the rape or Luke setting Katie on fire. But then he claimed he saw Luke put the blanket on the sprinkler. The detective pounced and said, you therefore knew what he was about to do. Stephen claimed Katie slapped Luke. And then he pushed her down on the bed and put a pillow on her face and quote, He just kept having sex with her and I guess he got done and shit like that. I was just standing there. So his story just changed again. Now he was there when Luke finished raping Katie, not leaving as Luke was still raping Katie as he had said. He said Luke got up and ominously told him, you didn't see nothing. Then Stephen said Luke sprayed her with a hairspray and that's when he walked out. The detective asked him to show him, and Stephen mimicked spraying Katie's body and the bed. They again asked if he saw Luke set the fire, and Stephen denied it. He said no, because when I got outside, I ran down the steps. I ran. I knew he was going to do something crazy, so I just left. I just ran and ran. They also found out how Stephen got to Brian Ritchie's house to be on his couch by 7 a.m. the next morning. He had stolen a girl's purple bicycle and ridden it there, leaving it in the front yard. Stephen was then sent to the hospital for the sexual perpetrator tests. When he came back, he was more steady. And yet the police did not arrest him. At the very least, he had watched a rape and asked Mark Ritchie to give him an alibi. He had lied to police multiple times and his story had changed many times. But instead of arresting Stephen Soles, the police let him go and got a warrant for Luke Goodrum to go to the hospital for perpetrator testing. They then brought Luke in for questioning. He truthfully gave a timeline of the night's events, meeting at the bowling alley, going to the Pike party, going back to the Bemis Storm after the party. They asked him if he saw Katie Autry at the party, and he admitted he had seen her dancing and that she was really drunk. He said she never danced with him, and he knew that Ryan Payne had given her a ride home. They asked him if he had talked to Stephen, and he said, no, sir. They asked him if Ryan would do anything like that. He said, no, sir. I played football with him. I'd vouch for him. He explained that after Ryan dropped him off at the bowling alley, he got his car and drove to his dad's, who was up, and chewed him out for being a bad father. The cops asked why, and he said, quote, "'Cause I'm a loser. I don't work. I quit a good job like an idiot.'" A detective claimed he thought Luke was a straight shooter and straight out asked him, "'At any time did you go to Poland Hall that night?' Luke said, "'Where?' With a puzzled look on his face. Then he said, quote, "'I don't know where that is.'" The only dorm I went to was Brian and Damien's, meaning the Bemis Lawrence dorm. The detective tried to scare him by saying there was security camera footage, and Luke insisted, no, I did not do that to that girl, I swear to God. So they asked him who did. One detective told him not to cover for anyone because no one would cover for him. Luke said, quote, sir, I know that. Brian and Damien was with me the whole night, and the girl saw me come in and sit down in the lobby of that dorm. By the girl, he meant the R.A., who had already verified this story. He described the clothing he had worn that night and again said that his dad was up and waiting for him when he got home. Then the detectives tried the old, well, how did your fingerprints get in her room? At this, Luke yelled, what? Sir, I don't even know that girl. Call my dad right now. The detective kept on, saying other people had ratted on him. Luke never budged. One detective claimed they had hair samples from the bed and would get DNA. Luke replied, Quote, Them tests will show you I ain't done nothing. Again, they went back to the fingerprints they supposedly had. Luke said, I don't know. Then they said, what about the security footage tapes? And Luke said, well, let me see the tapes. He had just called their bluff. There were no tapes and there were no fingerprints. Again, the police are allowed to lie when questioning a suspect, just like they could ask leading questions to Stephen. But unlike Stephen, Luke never changed his story. As Luke kept denying everything, the detective asked why people would lie about him. Luke shouted, people are jealous of me. I have a nice car. I have a pretty girlfriend. I don't know. My mom and stepdad are pretty rich. After this, the Western Police Chief Robert Dean came in and conferred with the detectives. And then Luke Goodrum was formally arrested and charged with capital murder and taken to the Warren County Jail. On May 12th, Detectives found Katie's jewelry next door to Evangeline Soule's house, right where Stephen told them it would be. Only he originally claimed that Luke put it there. Right. Luke went to the house next door to Stephen's grandmother and hid the jewelry. It was preposterous, and on further questioning, Stephen admitted he hid the jewelry himself and that he had stolen it. So, we have more lies from Stephen Souls, And the more the police questioned him, the more elaborate the lies became. He now claimed that he did not have sex with Katie first, and when Luke came in and started attacking her, he was yelling for Luke to stop. He claimed that Luke threatened him and his family if he didn't shut up. He also now said that Luke had put on a condom before he raped Katie. I think at this point, he understood that his DNA would be the only one found. So again, to cover his ass, he kept embellishing. He even said that Luke put the condom in his pocket when he was finished, and then forced him to put the hand sanitizer in Katie's vagina. Then, the most incredible lie, he said that Luke forced him to take his turn and rape Katie, and that he did it out of fear. And now he explained his fingerprints on the hairspray bottle by changing his story yet again, and saying Luke made him spray Katie's breasts and genitals. And now that was the song he was singing, and he would not get off that chorus. Luke made me do it. Luke made me do it. On July 22, 2003, the Commonwealth of Kentucky filed notice that they were pursuing the death penalty against Luke and Stephen. Though Stephen's family had raised the money for a defense attorney, his case was now handed over to the public defender's office. The attorney the family hired had no prior experience with death penalty cases, which was a requirement, and a capital trial would extremely raise the costs associated with a good defense. On August 28, 2003, the DNA results finally came back. The vaginal swab taken from Katie was tested against Luke, Stephen, and the boy Katie was seeing named Maurice. Stephen's souls was a positive match, while the other two men were ruled out. Regardless, Lucas Goodrum remained in jail. Both men were denied bond due to the serious nature of the crime. In town gossip and the media, Luke and Stephen were pitted against each other as the rich boy against the poor boy, as author William Van Meter pointed out. And this was not exactly true. Luke was not close to the Turner Dollar Store family. He was not raised by them. His stepfather was their relative, and he had only helped raise Luke for a few short years, before his own incarceration, and then he sent Luke back to his real father. But to be fair, Luke's family could afford a good defense attorney. His mother was still married to Bruce Dugas, who did come from money. They hired famed Bowling Green defense attorney David Broderick. He was known as a showboat in the courtroom, but also as one of the best criminal defense attorneys in the state. In March of 2004, Stephen Soules was offered a deal by the Commonwealth if he would testify against Luke Goodrum. He would get life without parole, or he could roll the dice and risk his life at a capital murder trial. He later insisted that his defense attorney pressured him into taking the deal. In a later appeal, his attorneys argued that Stephen was not given enough time to consider this deal and felt too pressured he lost that appeal. I could not find where Luke Goodrum had been offered the same deal first, and I don't believe he was. It's difficult to understand why the police were so focused on Luke when they had no physical evidence against him. It was only the word of Stephen Souls, who had already admitted to taking part in the crime. But the Commonwealth was determined to convict Luke Goodrum. Maybe it was some of the rich boy versus poor boy prejudice. If you look at Reddit, there are claims that physical evidence was suppressed. The folks on Reddit can speculate all they want, just as the town gossips can, but if the Commonwealth had had any physical evidence tying Luke Goodrum to Katie's rape and murder, they damn well would have used it. Almost two years had passed, and Luke Goodrum sat in the county jail awaiting trial. As he did, three inmates came forward and claimed that Luke had confessed his participation in Katie's murder to each of them at different times. Jailhouse snitches are notoriously unreliable, and one of these men didn't come forward until after the trial had started. They proved to be terrible witnesses at trial. Lucas Goodrum finally went on trial in March of 2005. The trial was moved 60 miles away to Owensboro due to the publicity in Bowling Green. Stephen Stoles was the star witness, of course, but his testimony was weak, especially in the face of all of his changing stories and lies. Luke had several good character witnesses, but one of these was not Ryan Payne, the designated driver that night. He was supposedly Luke's friend and had played football with him. Between his questioning with the police and then later on the stand, Ryan Payne would claim he didn't remember anything. I do not understand his shiftiness in this case. There is no physical evidence suggesting that he was tied to the crime, and he had alibi witnesses. But he came off as uncooperative and suspicious. But Luke had better witnesses. One was a character witness against Stephen Soles, who had witnessed him setting fire to a truck he had stolen. They also played homemade rap tapes Stephen had made with a friend with very violent and misogynistic lyrics. It was rightly pointed out that those type of lyrics are common in the rap genre, but the effect of hearing those tapes on the jury cannot be discounted. There were also expert witnesses, one a retired FBI agent who believed that the police had planted the notion of a second accomplice in Stephen's head. Stephen had told his story numerous times without mentioning Louis Goodrum's name until the detective suggested that there was another man there that night. They also had a professor of forensic science testify to Locard's theory. Locard was a pioneer in the field of forensic science who had stated that a perpetrator will always bring something to a crime scene and leave with something from the crime scene. It is a common police principle and extremely relevant in a case with literally no physical evidence against the defendant. The Commonwealth prosecutor had tried to suggest that physical evidence such as hairs would have been washed away from the sprinkler, still holding to the theory that Luke had used a condom as to why there was no DNA found on Katie's body. The forensic professor replied that the water would not have washed away selectively only one suspect's hair. And let's not forget that not only was Stephen Soul's DNA found on Katie's body, his shirt with the feces was found. Without going into very graphic specifics, The multiple felony charges included sodomy. One of the last witnesses at trial was Western Police Chief Robert Dean. His testimony was cringe-worthy, as Broderick got him to admit that he did not check out Luke's alibi witnesses. Remember, there were more than just his parents to say what time he had come home. Katie spoke on the phone with Danica at 2.28 a.m., at literally the same time Lucas Goodrum was sitting on a couch in the Bemis Lawrence dorm, not in Poland Hall. Luke himself was an excellent witness. He spoke clearly and was not rattled by the prosecutor's questions on cross-examination. The jury reached a verdict within 3 hours, not guilty on all counts. On May 12, 2005, Stephen Souls was officially sentenced. Though there had been a plea agreement, it was within the judge's discretion to sentence Souls how he saw fit. He had several family members stand up as character witnesses, pleading for leniency. Most eloquent was his father, but Danny Soules still insisted that Luke was the actual leader in this crime, not his son. And his eloquence could not match the fire of Lisa Autry's victim impact statement. She addressed Stephen Souls directly, saying, quote, You and your family may think Katie was nothing or nobody, but to me she was my everything. She was my mother figure, my best friend, my big sissy, and she's a girl that could have accomplished anything in life, but I will never know where her life would have taken her thanks to you, sick boy. She practically spit out the name her sister had teased her attacker with. In his sentencing, the judge said, quote, One person we haven't heard from is, of course, Katie Autry. Her lips are sealed. And Mr. Souls, you saw to that. And he then sentenced him to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. It was over. Stephen Souls would spend the rest of his natural life in prison, and Luke Goodrum was finally free to get on with his own life. But that was not easy for him. In the Bowling Green and Scottsville communities, as well as Western, there will always be an air of suspicion. Luke Goodrum was a punk. He beat the women in his life. He rarely worked. His mom and stepdad kicked him out. Regardless of his upbringing, he has the aura of a rich kid who got away with murder. I think a lot of this attitude has to do with Western insisting on taking control of the investigation. The crime scene evidence will always be in question because of it. No, Luke Goodrum's DNA and fingerprints were not found. There has never been any evidence against him except the word of an admitted rapist and murderer who was trying to deflect responsibility from himself. Luke Goodrum was a violent asshole. That's a fact. But he has maintained, at least publicly, that he holds no animosity towards the Commonwealth, the Autry family, or anyone else involved. He told William Van Meter, quote, "'I think it was karma for how I treated women.' I would like to leave you with something positive, but I'm afraid I really can't. Western Kentucky University settled a lawsuit with the Autry family for $200,000 for failure to properly secure the dorm Katie lived in. Eight days after her murder, the university formed a campus safety task force and announced that new magnetic locks would be installed at all dorms, security cameras would be installed, and alcohol would be banned from fraternity houses. Unfortunately, the university president, Gary Ransdale, went on record with the Louisville Courier-Journal after this and made an extremely problematic and defensive statement. He said, quote, I'm going to make a point this year, unlike in past years, because I'm more conscious of it, of individual responsibility and prudence in your personal activities. Know when you're in a high-risk situation and remove yourself from it, and by all means, be sober enough to do so. Thank you, Mr. Ransdale, for blaming the victim and further contributing to rape culture that is still so rampant on our college campuses. Katie Autry may have been drunk, but she got a sober ride home with someone she and her friend knew. She made it into her dorm room, but someone else slipped in behind her due to the of security in her dorm. And after he brutalized her and set her on fire, he locked the door with her own key on his way out. The brutal rape and murder of 18-year-old Katie Autry is no one's fault but sick boy, Stephen Souls. Shame on you, President Ransdell, for suggesting otherwise. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic artist by Coley Horner and Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. A prime resource for today's episode was William Van Meter's brilliant book, Bluegrass, A True Story of Murder in Kentucky. Mr. Van Meter is a Bowling Green native and his analysis of this tragedy is written with grace and empathy. Today's case was suggested by listeners Mike and Keneal Whitlow. Don't forget I'm doing a live show with Alicia and Stacey from the podcast Trashy Divorces called The Scattered, Covered and Smoke tour. It's Southern Fried Trashy Divorces and we are so excited. It will be in Atlanta on Sunday, August 25th at vankman's and the doors open at 5 p.m. I've got a link to buy tickets in the show notes. There will be a Southern inspired menu for the evening, different types of seating for different tiers, and a meet and greet for VIP guests that you can also add onto any other ticket. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on most large platforms like Stitcher and other podcatchers. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit visit my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com. There you can sign up to be a patron of the show, make a one-time donation, or purchase show merchandise. That's southernfriedtruecrime.com. If you have any case suggestions, please email TrueCrime at gmail.com. Some private messages on social media get lost, so email is best. And please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you guys. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.